Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St. Oswald's Haberfield Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Keep that passage in Acts chapter 1 open. Have you ever stopped to consider why we're still here? I don't mean why we're still here at church. Hopefully you don't find the experience of being gathered with God's people for worship so boring or just dragging on that you're like, why are we still here? Come on, move it on. I mean, that is what pastor's kids say. I know that because I was one and I've got some, uh, but that's usually because they're the last to leave on a Sunday and it's a gut-level response to a hungry stomach. I don't mean why, why are we still here at church. What I mean is why are we still here on planet Earth? Why are, we, why are we still living in this world where sin and suffering and pain and disappointment and unmet expectations are still just a reality of life? I ask the question because if Jesus has died on the cross and atoned for the sins of the world, and if he's been raised in victory over death as the Lord of everything, then doesn't that raise a question of what are we still doing? What's the What's the delay? Why hasn't Jesus brought about the fullness of what he talked about, the kingdom of God? Couldn't he have risen from the dead, walked out of that tomb, and here we are in the new creation? What are we still doing here? Uh, That's a negative way to frame the question, but you could talk about it positively as well. You could say, well, if we are still here, what are we here to do? What's our purpose? What's our reason for being in this world? What are we here for? And there's a non-Christian answer to that question. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Of course, it's not framed in precisely those words. It's more along the lines of, Study hard, get a good job, find love, buy a house, settle down, enjoy the good experiences of life, travel and see the world, retire somewhere warm, do all of these good things because at some point, someone is going to call last drinks and the party will be over. But the Christian answer to that question is different. Christians say that we're here for mission. That's the answer that the book of Acts gives right here in these opening verses. See, Jesus could have, if he'd wanted to, ushered in his full reign and the glorious age to come in that moment after his resurrection, but the task wasn't done. Because the mission wasn't Just for a few people, 120 of them, we discover, who were meeting in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. That's the full number of 
the disciples in those early days before the Spirit came at Pentecost. It wasn't just meant for a small group that you could fit in this building, that they might be part of the new creation and life with Christ. No, the plan and purpose of God is that his kingdom, this kingdom of Jesus should be made known, verse 8, in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You saw that as well in Isaiah chapter 49, that God was going to make his servant this chosen person who would then sum it up in a people, a light to the nations, so that his kingdom would go to the ends of the earth. And today we start this teaching series for the next nine weeks in the book of Acts. It's a little nostalgic if you were here at the beginning because we began the soft launch of the plant here at St. Oswald's looking at this book And over these next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the first five chapters of Acts. We'll come back to the series again next year. These first five chapters, they're so rich in in detail and content that we don't want to rush through them and miss things. And see, Acts tells the story of how the early disciples, the first followers of Jesus, became a church and how that first church grew and how the mission of Jesus went out and it shows us how the movement known as Christianity, a movement that has now gone through all of the world, began. It's an incredible story. It's really fun to read, actually. We're going to have a lot of of, uh, great moments, I think, over the next nine weeks. I'm looking forward to it. As the Holy Spirit, he takes this fledgling movement and he fills it with power so that remarkable things happen. And as we follow this story of Acts, what we're going to see is that this story is our story. Not in the sense that it's uh, something to be replicated exactly, line by line or word for word. No, we have the benefit of hindsight and experience the last 2,000 years of the church figuring out what it looks like to be Christ's people. The early church, they were still figuring it out for the first time as they went. It took them the first 15 chapters to work out whether they should let Gentiles into the church. People who were not from a Jewish background, and whether those people not from a Jewish background would have to become Jewish in their observance of the law to be followers of Jesus. And so the goal isn't to just go back to Acts, no, but it is to see how that story is our continuing story, an unfinished story, a story of which we are characters now, playing our part as The mission of Jesus continues to go out here in this part of the world in 2023. And so this morning's a little bit of an introduction, a little bit of a framing of what we're going to see next, but we want to just reflect for our time together on what Jesus shows the disciples and us about mission from these opening verses here in the book of Acts. I'm going to look at it under three headings. 
Number one, Jesus is the author of mission. Number two, witnessing is the method of mission. And number three, the Holy Spirit is the power for mission. Jesus is the author of mission, witnessing the method of mission, and Holy Spirit, the power for mission. The book of Acts was written by Luke, the doctor. And we find out in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1, it's just good to understand that this is part 2 of a compendium volume. Unsurprisingly, the second half of the book of Acts. A lot of scholars refer to the two books as Luke-Acts, and they want to refer it that way because the point is that it's just an extension of the next part of the volume that Luke is writing. And so Acts 1 begins in the first book, Theophilus, same person he addresses Luke to, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now that translation in this Bible uh, translation actually obscures just a little bit of it here, and it's worth getting it. Uh, A better way to put that would be something like, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. All that he began to do and teach. And that little word began is easy to overlook, just to read over, especially easy if it's not in the translation, but it is there in some of the translations. And, and Luke includes it, I think, because he wants us to see that Acts is going to tell the story of what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. If, if Luke's what Jesus began to do and teach, then Acts is going to be what Jesus continues to do, what he goes on to do. It's, it's still his story. He's giving the instructions, verse 2. He's telling the apostles to wait, verse 4. And so the title of the book, The Acts of the Apostles, it's, it's a little bit misleading. In fact, the earliest manuscripts that we have of Acts don't include of the apostles. They just say Acts. And it's towards the end of the second century that we have manuscripts that say of the apostles in them. A better title might be something like The Acts of Jesus, part two. Through the church by the Holy Spirit. The Acts of Jesus, part two, through the church, by the Holy Spirit. It's through the church and the Holy Spirit because, I don't know if you noticed in that passage, but Jesus just exits stage left in these opening verses. Actually, you can see it on the stained glass window behind. If you've paid attention, you've got an eye for detail, you might notice that that's the moment where Jesus ascends into heaven with the disciples watching on. It's the, a moment that's kind of important to understand what's going on. And so we're just going to unpack it for a moment because even though Jesus goes up, we, we see in this passage, and even, because the, even though the disciples are looking up into heaven, what, wondering what just happened, the point of Jesus' ascension isn't that he goes to a space above the sky. 
so that if you could just get in, get a rocket ship somewhere and like travel up into outer space, you might be able to get to him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he speaks of this, and he says that we live as three-dimensional beings in four-dimensional reality. Now, just think about that for a moment. He's not making claims about physics or about the possibility of other created dimensions. By fourth dimension, what Lewis means is, that, is, is this heavenly realm, a, a different realm where God is. And so when Jesus ascends, what happens is more like he's crossing dimensions. He moves from humanity's place to God's place. It's not so much a geographical location, but the place where God dwells, the place where humans can't go, they cannot dwell and cannot access, except one human can, Jesus the resurrected one, the Lord of all. And that's the meaning of the ascension, not that Jesus has gone into space, but that he has ascended to the heavenly throne, that he has become part of and entered God's space, the human one. The son had been there, but now the human Jesus, the incarnate one, returns and brings humanity into God's presence. He's become king. And though he dwells in heaven until he returns in glory, because heaven and earth are not either or realities for him, he can still be present to the apostles just as he is present to us. He doesn't have to be either or. It's why it can still be his mission, his work in and through his people, his work by the Spirit whom he sends. And the disciples, they're told to wait until they receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that at point three, but notice just the logic of that for a second. Jesus is saying, don't think that this next part of the story is going to be about what you will do for me. It's going to be about what I am going to do in you and through you and with you for my glory. And over and over and over again in Acts, we see that it's the risen, reigning Lord Jesus who's acting by his spirit through his church to see his kingdom proclaimed, to see people respond to him in repentance, in faith, to see new churches planted in unreached cities and places where people begin to worship Jesus and to start to live the new life that he has called them into. Sometimes even Jesus shows up himself, like he does to Saul on the Damascus Road in a vision that leaves the would-be Apostle Paul blinded by Jesus' ascended glory. And all of that is important for us today because Jesus is the author of mission. He's still the author of mission. We don't have a mission that's independent on his, of his. Actually, we have a mission because God has a mission. We join in what he is doing. And that gives us confidence 
Because the one who authors it, the one who directs it, the one who controls it is the resurrected and ascended Lord. But if all that's the case, if he's the author of it, then what's our role? Well, secondly, witnessing is the method of mission. See, Jesus, he tells his apostles that they have a job to do, and it's to be his witnesses. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. A witness in the ancient world, just as in our world, was someone who testified in legal matters. Or more generally, a witness was someone who just attested to the truth of something. And the apostles, well, they were witnesses to Jesus because they saw him. They saw his life. They saw his sufferings, his death. They saw his resurrection, including what Luke describes as many convincing proofs. They saw his ascension in this passage. They heard him teach on the kingdom of God. They were eyewitnesses to him, and it it meant that their task wasn't to make something up about him, but to, to simply testify to what they had seen and heard. And so one of the apostles, the Apostle John, he writes a letter much later in the, in, in the at least in the chronology of the New Testament, uh, or the order of the New Testament books, and he says this, chapter 1 of 1 John, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify or bear witness to it. And so Acts is filled with these moments of the apostles and others in the early church telling people about what Jesus had done, what they'd seen, of how that fitted into the grand plan of the story of God, of what future was coming when Jesus returned and of how all of that made sense of the here and now. It's actually the same kind of thing that we keep doing today. Because the task of witnessing to Jesus, it's not finished yet. That's why our one-year goal this year at Christchurch in the West is that each member of our church will be more equipped and intentional as an everyday witness to Jesus. In three different ways, in prayer, in being able to have spiritual conversations and in being able to invite people into church life so that people might find grace. But a few details just to notice about witnessing for us. Number one, it's obvious, isn't it? Like the apostles, we're not eyewitnesses. We didn't see this with our eyes. They saw him resurrected. They touched him. They spoke with him. They watched him ascend. But we have to rely on them, on their testimony when we speak about him, which is one of the reasons that we don't create a new message. We don't change the gospel that was handed down to us. We keep proclaiming the Jesus of the New Testament. And most of the time, in the journey of helping someone find the grace and forgiveness of God, if you're trying to help someone to discover Jesus, there comes a point in the relationship where it's like, hey, would you like to read some of the Bible together so that you can discover Jesus for yourself? 
And the Spirit has a habit of taking the words in the Bible about Jesus and using them to revolutionize people's lives. But second, that doesn't mean that we don't also speak from experience. When we witness, we testify that the risen Lord Jesus is still active. He's still doing things. He's still changing people. He's met us and he's loved us and given us hope and purpose. And if you read through the book of Acts, uh, there's actually three moments where you hear about the conversion of Saul. It happens in chapter 9, which tells the story of his conversion, but then it happens again in chapter 22, and it happens again in chapter 26, and those latter two times are moments when Paul is giving his testimony. Once before the Jewish authorities, chapter 22, and then uh, the second one before uh, the imperial authorities, chapter 26. And you've got to remember that like writing in the ancient world when Luke was writing wasn't just like whip out a computer and bang out a few thousand words. Parchment was expensive and you didn't write anything more than needed to be said and yet Luke decides to include Saul, Paul's testimony two times beyond just the original time that it's told. And each time that Paul tells his testimony you get these little personal details that are added and thrown into the story of what his experience of meeting Jesus was like. It's not just a kind of rehash of what happened before. And and part of that is Luke's way of defending Paul's apostleship and his ministry, but part of it is to show us that as we witness to Jesus, we're to witness personally about how Jesus has impacted us. You don't just give a a kind of gospel download without showing how it's changing your life, showing how you've been impacted by it, how God's speaking to you and changing you. And actually sharing of your own experiences is a powerful way of connecting the story of Jesus to other people. Third thing, we're witnesses of good news. We'll see this over and over again in Acts, but it's just worth saying it here up front. Uh, Luke says in these verses that when Jesus was with the apostles after his resurrection for 40 days, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God referred to a promised future when God would rule the world, when he would bring about his perfect goodness, love, mercy and justice to the disorder of the world. And the promise, the hope was that when God came to rule like this, everything broken would be restored, would be mended, everything wrong would be made right, everything evil would be destroyed, the sick would be healed, the suffering would be lifted up and life would be as it was meant to be. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had proclaimed... Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. But here in this moment, after his death and his resurrection, and as he ascends to the heavenly throne, the kingdom of God has not just come near, it has been established. 
Jesus has walked out of the tomb, meaning that God has reversed the inescapable reality of even death, and that's why it's good news. It hasn't arrived in all its fullness. We are in this period where we wait between Jesus' ascension and his return. But the kingdom is coming as surely as the sun rises. The creator of the Christianity Explored course, British evangelist Rico Tice, he says it this way in the first episode of that series. He says, if you don't think that Christianity is the best news that you've ever heard, then you can be sure that you've not understood it. If you don't think that Christianity is the best news that you've ever heard, then you can be sure that you've not understood it. Because the kingdom of God is something that all of us deep down are longing for. When we long for peace and prosperity in our lives and the lives of the people we love, what we're longing for is the kingdom of God. When we long for the end of injustice, what we're longing for is the kingdom of God. When we long for tears to cease and for everything to work out in the end, what we're longing for is the kingdom of God. And in our secular culture, to use the words of Mark says, people want the kingdom without the king. And Christianity says there really is a kingdom. There really is. But you only get the kingdom with the king. And that's why we're his witnesses, proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king, that he's bringing everything good. And that this kingdom is available to all who repent and put their faith in him. Jesus is the author of mission. Witnessing to him is the method of mission. And third observation from these verses, the Holy Spirit is the power for mission. See, one of the surprising instructions given by Jesus to the apostles is to wait. They've got a pretty big job to do. Can you imagine? They're told that they've got to make his name known to all the ends of the earth. That's a lot of sermons to prepare and preach. That's a lot of letters to write. That's a lot of persuading to do. And yet Jesus says to them, wait. Because they're yet to receive the power of God for mission, which is the Holy Spirit. There is no mission without the Holy Spirit. Without him, mission will be a waste of time. It's like trying to have a fire without flame. I mean, think about it. Jesus is talking to 11 guys, and they're not especially impressive. One of them, the shining lights of the disciples, was a guy named Peter who had denied Jesus three times before his death. Before most of them had been called by Jesus, they were fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary people. And yet, if Jesus was being serious, and he was, there would come a time where they would have to testify before emperors and kings and queens. These guys aren't the Avengers. Ordinary people. I was reading one author this week who put it this way. 
Jesus' own earthly ministry was incredibly centralised. By the time of his ascension, he had brought the good news of himself to only roughly 0.03% of the earth's inhabitable land. 0.03%. His ministry encompassed a very tiny region of a very large world, yet he left this misfit band of tax collectors and fishermen who scattered when fearful and seemed unable to discern for themselves the most basic aspects of the good news of Jesus to evangelize the other 99.97% of the inhabitable world. And she concluded, at face value, this seems quite risky. How are they supposed to do this? How are they supposed to take what they have seen and heard and extend it to the ends of the earth? Yet you and I, we sit here in Sydney, Australia, quite literally the ends of the earth. Worshipping this Jesus and continuing to bear witness to him. And what makes it all possible is that it doesn't depend on their strength, but on the Holy Spirit's power. You know that Jesus didn't begin his public ministry until he was baptized by the Holy Spirit. All four of the gospel accounts have that early on. And so why would the church, why would those followers of Jesus be able to do something different? If Jesus didn't think that he could begin his earthly ministry without the power of Holy Spirit upon him, why is it that it would be possible to do that without the Holy Spirit empowering and filling and working through his people? We'll see this more over the coming weeks as we explore Acts. But my sense is that when Jesus promises power from the Spirit, he's not just speaking about the way that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell each believer at the moment of conversion. That is primarily how the Spirit comes, the comforter, the indwelling presence who is our guarantee of the inheritance to come. But in Acts, the Holy Spirit also comes as power specifically for mission. And as we read the narrative, we see moments where members of the early church are said to be full of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes full of the Holy Spirit and power in order to witness to Jesus, to do things that they could not do out of their own strength. And so I don't want to say too much about that now, but what that should lead us to is for a a longing, a prayerful and expectant and hopeful longing that the Holy Spirit might fill us and empower us to be Jesus' witnesses too. That he might do a new work again in our lives and in our church and in the inner west and in Sydney and across the world Because until Jesus returns, God's not done with mission. And that means that here in our context, as we disciple our children and our grandchildren, as we speak the gospel to each other in our church community, as we bear witness to our colleagues and our friends of just what God has done, 
as we're asked about our faith by curious or concerned neighbours. As we find ourselves nervous and unsure of what to say and how we'll be received, what we need is the power of God. And Holy Spirit power is exactly what Jesus promises. You will not do it alone. You cannot do it alone. But he comes to fill us and to make us effective witnesses to him. I want to conclude by sharing an extended reflection from an American theologian and professor, Barbara Brown Taylor, in an article she wrote called The Day We Were Left Behind, speaking about how we were left behind by Jesus ascending back into heaven. Uh, she says this. Just reflect on this. Maybe you can look up at this window as we do. No one standing around watching them that day could have guessed what an astounding thing happened when they all stopped looking into the sky and looked at each other instead. On the surface, it was not a great moment. Eleven abandoned disciples with nothing to show for all their following. But in the days and years to come, it would become very apparent what had happened to them. With nothing but a promise and a prayer, those 11 people consented to become the church, and nothing was ever the same again, beginning with them. The followers became leaders. The listeners became preachers. The converts became missionaries. The healed became healers. The disciples became apostles, witnesses of the risen Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing was ever the same again. That probably was not the way they would have planned it. If they had had it their way, they would have probably tied Jesus up so that he could not have gotten away from them so that they would have known where to find him and rely on him forever. Only that is not how it happened. He went away, he was taken away, and they stood looking up toward heaven. Then they stopped looking up toward heaven, looked at each other instead, and got on with the business of being the church. And once they did that, surprising things began to happen. They began to say things that sounded like him. And they began to do things that they had never seen anyone but him do before. They became brave and capable and wise. Whenever two or three of them got together, it was always as if there was someone else in the room with them whom they could not see. The strong, abiding presence of the absent one, as available to them as bread and wine, as familiar to them as each other's faces. It was almost as if he had not ascended, but exploded. So that all the holiness that was once concentrated in him alone flew everywhere, flew far and wide, so that the seeds of heaven were sown in all the fields of the earth.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you call us to be part of your people and that calling to be part of your people is not a static or stationary one, but one that involves a purpose, a mission to be witnesses to him in whatever capacity that you have given us, in whatever context that you have placed us, we thank you that you use us. And some of us no doubt feel a little sceptical about how we could be useful for you. We feel like it's been so long since we've been used by you as a witness to someone else that we wonder whether... There's just nobody left in our lives that we could do that with. Some of us feel like we don't know what to say. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill us with your power so that we might see afresh opportunities to bear witness to you, that we might be prayerful and expectant and hopeful. That we might look for signs of life in a world where death reigns. Because we know that you are bringing people to life, even here in our context, even here in the inner west of Sydney. And we want to play our part in being used by you for your glory. Equip us as a church, equip us each as individual disciples and followers. And we pray it all for the glory of your name. Amen.